So years ago, I was sitting in a sauna uh, after a wor- workout at the Y, and uh, not so much listening as overhearing two men talk. And I, I didn't know either of those men, uh, uh, but from their conversation, it became pretty obvious that both of them were tennis players. And one of the men was lamenting an injury to, I don't quite remember whether it was to his shoulder or to his elbow, but that injury he had suffered was inhibiting his swing and negatively affecting his tennis game. And then he made this rather absurd statement. He said that the human body was not designed very well. And the implication was that with a few changes in design, Why, that could have made all the difference in a human's ability to play tennis. And and I suppose in a way that he was right, if the purpose behind the design of our bodies was that we would be greatly efficient at playing tennis, and then certainly things could have been done differently. But of course, then we wouldn't have been able to play golf, maybe not at all, not that some of us can play anyway, and That wouldn't be such a great loss, I don't think. But we wouldn't be able to play baseball or basketball either. At least we wouldn't be as efficient at it. Having a body designed uh, specifically to play tennis would alter the way we do all sorts of everyday things. Maybe some few things might work better, but most things would be negatively affected. And when you think of all the variety of things you can do in your bodies, I mean, we can play tennis, uh, basketball, golf, we can go for walks, we can run, we can sit, we can lie down, we can crawl, we can dance. We we can recline under the night sky and look at the stars. We can hold our babies and our children. We can sit at a desk and type or prop ourselves up on an elbow, laying on a floor and read a book. And we begin to realize just how amazing the design of our bodies really is. And we haven't even talked about uh, how we grow from infants to adults and how the changes occur within living human uh, organisms and and that uh, our body has an ability to repair itself when it's injured and to reproduce or or how our feet and our eyes and our hands and the rest of us all work in concert when we're doing some of the things we do about the different systems within our body and how they work together. Really, it's quite amazingly well designed, don't you think? God knew what he was doing and he really didn't need any advice from us. Well, you know, the same thing could be said about the church, which is often in the scriptures pictured as the body of Christ. And there really are many people who are critical of it. There are many, even some Christians, who think that it has outlived its usefulness. Some have even come up with their own design. They meet just with their families on Sunday. They remain small and protected and isolated. And, or they meet in very small house groups with similar kinds of results where each person takes a turn at communicating God's word or, or maybe one person dominates in that role. Now, there may be some things that may seem to work better at least for a while and in some areas at least it may seem that way. For example, you might be spared uh, some negative experiences, but you also miss all of the positive things that happen within a church, within a group like this. You miss the growth and the love and the encouragement, the fellowship, the correction and the discipline, the exposure to other people's insight into the Word of God as we learn from one another. And you see, when God established a church, He really knew what He was doing. He didn't need your advice or mine. 
The truth only swings the other way. We need to hear what he has to say about it and to trust him to work through the church as he intends to do. The passage we're going to look at today talks about the church. It tells us more about it. I mean, we've recently talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, that he's at work here in our midst, and that when we gather together as we do now, that we're really getting more than we might have expected, that he is building us into a spiritual building where God may dwell, as amazing as that thought is, that God may dwell in his spirit in us, and that's exactly what he's doing here today. What we discover in this passage is that there are human tools which God uses to accomplish his purpose. And we learn what that purpose is and its impact and the extent of it. So I'd like to invite you to join me in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 4, where we'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. Of course, Jim will have it up on the screen on either side, but if you have your Bibles, you can join me there. And we're going to begin by uh, beginning uh, at the passage and reading verse 11. And we read there these words. Paul wrote this. He said, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And I'm going to stop right there and note a few things. First, um, people like pastors and teachers, and we'll come back to the others in a little bit, but they have an office, Right? Uh, They may serve in what we would call an official position or full-time ministry, and most pastors fit that category. But most teachers and and some pastors, well, they have other jobs, and they aren't paid to minister. And those of us who really do serve in a full-time capacity or as pastors at church really understand how valuable teachers are and what a sacrifice pastors make who really are bivocational and have to hold down another job so that they can do the kinds of things they, they do. But these offices that we see listed here really are important to the church, but they're filled by mere human beings. And I think that distinction is important. I mean, there are times when we should have respect for the office, even when the person filling it lets us down. We see that politically speaking, but it's true in the church too. Uh, We need to have respect for that office, even if the person lets us down. We are, I mean, pastors, teachers, we all, after all, all of us, we're just people. And, And none of us have arrived yet. We all are on a journey. Of course, a pastor or a teacher abuses their office that needs to be dealt with, and and we are held to a higher standard. I understand that. We are held to that standard whether we like it or not, but we are not perfect. And the question in such cases really is, it's not whether the man is perfect or not, but whether his life is moving in the right direction. And if in humility he receives correction or criticism, and, and even then we might struggle, but but we ought to be trying anyway. So we're just human beings that fill these offices. But that really does bring us to another important understanding. And that is as though we're just people filling these offices. Every one of these offices here ministers the word of God to others. It's what they all have in common, and it's the most important thing that they do. I mean, there may be other things that they do, each one of these offices. I mean, pastors may 
need to lead in some ways a church and visit the sick and evangelists may have to travel. But the ministry of the word is what's important. Think about Peter. Uh, you know, when he would, went fishing after Jesus' uh, resurrection, you know, and they come back in and Peter then begins to restore Peter because you know, he denied him three times. And what did he say? Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep, right? That is the most important thing that we do. And so in God's plan in, in the church is that the church has fallible human beings who minister the word of God to other fallible human beings. And in God's wisdom, he really knows what's best. You see, you might think, or I might think, it would have been better if he etched it on the sky, all of his words on the sky for everyone to read. Well, that's not what he did. Instead, he gave these offices to people that we may minister his word to his people. And that's a better plan than you or I can come up with. That's God's design. Fallible people like me fill an office to share God's word with other people who need to hear God's word. Now, a couple more things to note here about this verse. One is that Christ himself is the one who gave these offices to the church. So when he was on the earth, he said in Matthew 16 that he would build his church, and these are just one of the tools that he uses to do that. And then, of course, we want to note a couple of the other offices we haven't mentioned yet. You know, um, uh, evangelists like Billy Graham or Luis Palau and pastors and teachers are pretty familiar to us, but the first two in the list aren't quite as clear-cut. And there are some different uh, ideas about them. Some think that these offices ended at the beginning of the second century, and others think that they still exist today. And there are different definitions uh, for them and what they mean or what they're supposed to mean today if they do exist. And, and I have to tell you, honestly, this isn't the time that we are going to go over this. We don't have the time to do it. But I'm going to tell you what I think about those two offices, okay? And I hope this is helpful to you. I think of apostles. I think since the word itself means sent one, I think of them as missionaries. And as for prophets, I think of someone like a Franklin Graham who speaks to our culture at large. Now, I have to tell you, I'm willing to be incorrected. I'm willing to be taught about that. But these ideas, I think, really can serve you well, as long as you know there may be more to them. But it's not less than this. And the important thing is to understand that every one of those offices is there to minister the Word of God to the people of God. Which brings us to verse 12 and the first half of it, which tells us the impact of those offices on the church. And so we read, since Christ himself, uh, it's quote, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service. So that Greek term that the NIV translates his people is actually uh, the words that mean holy ones or saints, right? So technically speaking, the NIV is correct in that all saints belong to God, and that's why anyone is a saint, because they belong to God. But the word that Paul chose to use here, saints, emphasizes our character. God's people are to be holy, 
Now, and I have to say something about that word holy because there's a lot of confusion in our culture about it. A lot of people hear the word holy and they think of holier than now. That's not what this word means. This word means holy. And the, and the best word that I can come up with to try to say what that means so that people in our culture understand it is to say that they're to be good. Only you have to kind of say it the right way. They're, they're good, you see. God's people are to be good. People uh, who, who reflect the image of God to those around us. And from this, what we need to understand is that whatever else must happen in the ministry of the word, we ought to be, as a people of God, in this process of becoming better people. That's the purpose of the ministry of the word. And, and at, that happens as we do works of service, or as some translations put it, works of ministry. So understand this, okay? The ministry of pastors and teachers is to make you ministers in your part of the world. Uh, We are to equip you for ministry. So Christ came to serve, uh, and he sends us to do the same. And his his service came at a cost. He paid a price to minister to us. And so our ministry will also involve sacrifice. So the word, as it's ministered to our hearts, enables us to serve others. And that word, uh, equip, means to be made able. So you could think of it as as a tool being given to someone to enable them to do his or her job or it could mean the knowledge that is imparted for that same reason or, or it could be motivation to do that job but here when we look at this passage it has to include all of those things and so as a pastor through the preaching and the teaching of the word why well, I demonstrate at least I hope I do as I do this Sunday after Sunday stand up or in a, a Sunday school class as I as I show you God's word. I'm demonstrating how to use God's word, how to approach God's word, how to understand God's word. And I also hope that through my preaching, I'm imparting knowledge and teaching you the word. And, and, I, and I believe with all of my heart that the word motivates people to serve. But it's not just pastors. It's not just me that does this. It's every person who teaches, whether it's in a Sunday school class or a life group leader or a Bible study. It's God's design that through the ministry of the word, his people will become better people and, and, and that we will be given the tools we need to do the job that we've been called to, to be ministers at that place in our world where we live. Now, I have to tell you, there's little doubt in anyone's mind that the service that we're talking about happens both inside and outside of the church. So we teach God's people inside the church, and we witness in various ways to those on the outside. But that ministry, wherever it is happening, builds up the church itself, which brings us to the second half of verse 12. I'm going to read this whole thing again here. It says, so Christ gave himself, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So your works of service, your ministry, which God has called you to in that place where you are in the world, whether it's inside the church or outside, builds up the body of Christ. 
Hey, and we don't have time to go into it, but we know from other scriptures, a church is made up of many members, each having their own gifts, but making up one body. And so it is here in Ephesians and, and at Y Bible Church and at every other local expression of the body of Christ, many members making up one body. And you see, the church needs you. We need you. But you need the church. You see, you come here and you get fed and you grow and you learn and you change and you become more and more the person that God intends you to be. And then you minister to others, which helps them to become all that they should be. One of my favorite ways of thinking about things is we come to church and we get our cups filled. And when your cup is full, then you have something to offer other people. Because you come and your cup is filled and then you go out to the world or wherever you are and you're able to share that with someone else and then you come back and you get that cup filled again. We come here to this building which is where the church meet and we have God's word ministered to us. It changes us. It, it makes us better people. We get our cups filled and we are able to minister to others which in turn builds up the entire church, the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit is at work here, both personally and through the instruments, the human instruments that he's called who minister God's word to the people of God. And it really is an ongoing process. So, so the reason God gave some to be pastors and teachers is to minister the word to his people. And, and the impact is that it makes us all better people and it builds up the entire body And verse 13 tells us the extent of God's continuing work in us and among us. So let's read the whole passage now. It says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, we have not arrived yet, but verse 13 tells us the goal, which is which God has in mind for his people. And there are four things that are listed here. First, God is in the process of building us together until we reach unity in the faith. Now, you know, if you've been around any time at all, the church is often criticized both by those on the inside and outside for the divisions which exist. Sometimes those criticisms are just. Sometimes they're not. Whenever there's a division uh, where love between believers is lessened, then we can say unequivocally that such a division is wrong. Yet not all divisions necessarily fit that scenario. There are many what we would call second-order things which we are free to differ on as Christians, which will lead us to having separate churches, but not necessarily that we will love one another less. For example, I have to tell you, I'm not going to baptize babies because I believe the Bible says it indicates that baptism is for those who've made a decision to follow Christ, which babies are not yet in a position to do. But other churches see it differently. And we both 
have to be true to our consciences and our beliefs. So we're going to have different churches, but not a different love. And our love for one another doesn't need to be diminished at all. So when I was in Illinois, I met every week with a local Methodist pastor and a local Presbyterian pastor, and we prayed together, and we talked together, and we encouraged one another. But I wasn't about to become a Presbyterian or a Methodist, and they weren't about to become a Baptist. But we loved one another, and we were united together in serving Christ. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. We can have those secondary differences, things which we disagree on, which even makes us have separate churches, but we will be united in our love for Christ and for one another. And as we gather together, as we learn his word, as we interact with one another, God is bringing about in us that kind of thing. He's uniting us in the faith, uh, us here both in this building and with other believers around us. The second thing which uh, describes the extent of God's work in the church is that we're going to grow in our knowledge of the Son of God. Uh, and that knowledge mentioned here is not just the general kind of knowledge, it's, uh, it's the very specific idea of knowledge of the Son of God, which, which I think means uh, certainly more than just knowing about him, right? It, it means knowing him personally. So have you ever heard, and of course you have, <laughs> You ever heard anyone say, um, he's a personal friend of mine? Talking about someone, he's a personal friend of mine. Now I just want to ask, well, how many impersonal friends do you have? But we understand what's meant by that, don't we? We understand that that person means, they, they know that person. They can call him a friend. He's more than just someone they've read about in the paper, more than just an acquaintance. At least that's what they intend to communicate. Well, our knowledge of Jesus is like that. See, we haven't just read about him. He's more than an acquaintance. He, he, we know him. He's our Savior. He's our friend. He loves us, and we love him. And, and our knowledge of Jesus grows as we see him living in other people. See, I, I know more about Christ because I knew Sam and Flossie Gertz, my friends from my home church, who were missionaries in Ghana and Nigeria for 40 years. I know more about Christ because I saw his face in my grandmother. I know more about Christ because I knew Gary Berger and because of people like you here in this room. See, we, when we come together like we do, we meet Christ and his people. And our knowledge of him begins to grow. The third thing which describes the impact of the ministry of God's word as a church is built up is that we become mature. And uh, becoming mature indicates that we must grow up in the faith. Now, I think that might be a little hard to describe what that means. And maybe some of the signs of maturity is doing what's right when you feel like doing something else. Or maybe it means holding your tongue or receiving criticism or loving your enemies. Maybe all of those things and more, right? It may be hard to define, but I, but I think I, we know it when we see it. Looking ahead a little bit, we know that it means, if you were to look ahead in the Scriptures, it means not being tossed around by different teachings or, or being easily deceived by false prophets. Yet it's really more than that. 
There's a solidness to our faith. It's real and it's stable. Frank Day tells about when he first came here to this church and he and he saw the confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence in the people that were here. And he wanted to bring his girls here so that they could be exposed to that. That solidness, that maturity, that realness of the faith. And see, as Christ works in us, we become solid. He does it through the ministry of the word. As the church is built up and as God's people become better and better people and as we help one another in that process. And finally, we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know, it's really a remarkable statement that we attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know, God's not stingy. He gives us the whole measure. He dumps the truck, so to speak. <laughs> he gives us the fullness of Christ. He gives us the best of all that he had. He gives us all in his completeness when he gives us Christ. What more could you and I want? You know, what that certainly means, is though it may mean much more, and I'm sure it does, is that we are not all that we are supposed to be in this world, not yet, and we won't be until we are like Christ in this world. The Bible says that the followers of Christ were first called Christians in Antioch. And that word Christian means little Christ. And don't you hope that when people see you, they see Christ in you and through you? Wouldn't it be great if even those who opposed the faith saw God in us and couldn't help but acknowledge it as they did in Antioch and as people have done down through the ages when they've met mature Christians filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. You see, when we gather together, we get more than we could ever imagined on our own. The Holy Spirit is building us into a spiritual house where God lives in us through his spirit. And, And God has given to the church men who though they're fallible, sinners like everyone else, nevertheless minister God's word to God's people, which changes us. It causes us to become better people good people, saints, holy ones. And since our cups are then full, we then minister to others, both inside and outside the church, which builds up the church. And all of that goes on and continues to go on until we reach real unity in the faith. And we grow in our relationship with Christ, becoming solid and strong and until we become like Christ in this world. I know you've all seen the children's books that talk about it. You've probably seen some programs or pictures in science books. A pretty ugly little caterpillar makes his way around the leaves and eats some food and at some certain point wraps itself up in a cocoon. 
period of time passes. And then out of that cocoon comes a beautiful butterfly. It's a kind of metamorphosis. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. That doesn't even begin to compare with what Christ is doing in us. There's no cocoon. Her work is continual. He continues working in you and in me. And you and I need each other. You will never become what Christ intends you to by yourself. And this church will never become all God intends without you. That's his design. It's his purpose. It's not mine. Not yours. But it is God's. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you um, for the amazing things that we learn in your word, um, things that uh, I think sometimes we read over when we read your word, things that sometimes we've heard and they don't register with us, things that are beyond what um, we would naturally expect. Um, but the body of Christ is like nothing else on earth. And then again, your love for us is like nothing else. Lord, help us because you gave yourself to us to give ourselves to you fully and completely. And may our world not be the same because of it. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.